Revelation chapter 2, and we're looking this morning from verse 18 uh, through to verse 29, Revelation chapter 2, 18 to 29. As we turn now to God's Word, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, at the end of each of these letters, uh, your Word says, let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Father, we're about to study your word, but we, we pray it would be not just information, um, but by your Spirit we would hear, truly grasp, and uh, be transformed um, by your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, Revelation 2, beginning at verse 18. Let's hear God's word. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished, bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come." The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, we all know that going to church doesn't make much difference to your everyday life. Uh, the Sunday morning hour, or so, if the preacher happens to be particularly long-winded that day, uh, really impacts how we actually live. I mean, after all, you might say, what is the difference between someone who went to church on Sunday on Monday from someone who went to church on Sunday, didn't go to church on Sunday on Monday. I mean, really. 
Not a whole lot. I mean, they both wear a suit and tie or carry a backpack and a cell phone, texting each other rigorously, you know. They both try to live kind of moral lives, being nice to each other and those around them. They're both perhaps patriotic. They might even both vote for the same party. Either way, the political allegiance doesn't seem to change much in terms of reference to their actual church attendance, even if it does affect their religious sensibilities. Now, of course, you might say, religion is very important to most Americans, of course. In fact, there are polls and statistics to bear this fact out. Uh, uh, One poll of of Americans showed that 65% of Americans would say and would check the box, religion is very important to their lives, you see. And uh, this particular author of this particular poll uh, concluded uh, from it that uh, there is a deep desire for spiritual moorings, a hunger for God in this country. He said, people are reaching out in all directions in their attempt to escape from the seen world to the unseen world, the, the transcendent, we might put it. People long for that. That's certainly all true today, but church, you've got to be kidding me. What does that have to do with it? Oh, yes, I've heard of Augustine of Hippo and his well-known phrase about there's no salvation outside the church. But contra Augustine of Hippo, salvation happens all the time outside the church. It happens even on TV, for goodness sake. No, the main difference between people who go to church and people who don't seems to be that they have less time to wash their car. And even that's a bit minimal. I mean, perhaps two hours less in a week. Or maybe the main difference is that they get to do less overnight weekend getaways and all that, you see. Yes, as we all know, church doesn't make a whole lot of difference to your life. No, in fact, you might say, church is an enacted religious theory whereby we postulate the traditional beliefs of historical American culture. You know, God and the Bible and Puritans and all that. In a ceremony that is divorced from contemporary reality. Well, that's perhaps what you might think in your darker moments. But according to the passage we're looking at this morning, it is not true. In fact, according to this fourth letter to the seven letters of the churches of Asia, in fact, Jesus is in charge and his rule is going to be shared with the faithful church. It is not the president of America who rules the nations, it's Jesus. And it is not his political cronies who will exercise a share in the presidential power, it is we who are faithful to the orthodox biblical church. He says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken to pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, Jesus says 
verse 26. And again, uh, at the start of the letter, verse 18, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. The Son of God is in charge. And the church who remains faithful to him will rule with him. Now, there's a lot of background to this letter that needs to be carefully traced in order for us to understand the full force of its words. You see, unlike the previous cities to which the letters were addressed, Thyatira was not historically a particularly remarkable city. It was certainly not Chicago, if you like, or D.C. or Harvard. It it was a smallish city that had nearly always been ruled by foreign invaders. It was situated in a valley between two other valleys, and this geopolitical um, situation, uh, circumstance, afforded it very little protection against foreign armies. And so when you read its history, it just appears to be one invasion after another. Because of this uh, geographical vulnerability, though, it was always a garrison town. That is a place where there was a military uh, sort of camp stationed there for its defense, you see. In effect, uh, it became, if you like, an outpost for the Pergamum Empire based 40 miles down the road in the capital, Pergamum. That's one matter about Thyatira that's important to grasp as background to this letter to understand the force of its words, its military presence and constant conquest. The other is the astonishing number of what are known uh, to historians as trade guilds. Uh, that were present in Thyatira. Now, trade guilds were ancient ways of organizing trade, business, you see. They were um, societies of commerce um, which worshipped a particular pagan god associated with that particular business. And and they they collaborated to support each other in the particular trade to which uh, it was uh, dedicated and the god in their minds supported In Thyatira, there appear to have been a whole bunch, tons of these kinds of trade unions, as we might call them. For while Thyatira was a city that had constantly been conquered by other powers, once the Roman Empire became established and the famous Pax Romana, the the peace of Rome, brought stability to the ancient world, once that had happened... Thyatira's very vulnerability to traffic and people sort of driving across it all the time became a great source of strength for trade. And actually, soon after our time, Thyatira became a very powerful trading center. And at our time, it was developing in that direction. You can find one piece of evidence for this in the Bible. For instance, uh, uh, Lydia who was converted through the ministry of Paul in Philippi, as uh, recorded in the book of Acts, was a trader in purple cloth from Thyatira, you see. And she also had a house in Philippi, though, indicating the sort of growing spread and wealth of the trade organizations of Thyatira right across the ancient world, even to Philippi in Macedonia. Military conquest. Growing trade prominence. That's Thyatira. Such was Thyatira. 
And you see, this situation provided unique and difficult challenges to the Christians who were trying to be faithful there. You see, because being a member of a trade guild was really the only way to advance in the world, Christians would have been easily uh, tempted to become members of these organizations. After all, why not? Uh, Christians knew the idols that they worshipped were nothing. And if they did not become a member of a trade guild, their livelihood would rapidly diminish, perhaps to the point of poverty. However, if they did become a member of the trade guild, they would need to engage in the pagan festivities that periodically at least took place, where meat which had been offered to the idol was consumed at the tables as a sort of symbolic present from the God blessing their business, and where after the meal there were more fleshy immoral activities that were the expected norm, a sort of you know, going to the red light district or a strip club, if you like. And into this situation of perplexing conflict between you know, the world and the church, uh, Jezebel, here comes the, 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 this rather strange reference to Jezebel, Jezebel provided what seemed like a ready answer. Jezebel is a, a pseudonym, another name for either a teaching, you know, referenced by a single name, either a teaching or a person, we, we don't know, but one way or another, implying its derivation, her derivation, if you like, from the Old Testament Jezebel, who was famed for having led Israel astray to pagan gods. And Jezebel, it is probable, was teaching them something like this. We know idols are nothing. And we know that grace is stronger than sin. So go to the festivities of the trade guilds. Be involved. Even the deep things of Satan. They will not tarnish your profession of faith. Indeed, you will be strengthened in your devotion by knowing these things and still being mature enough to keep on believing in Jesus. Yeah, it was, in other words, a teaching saying that moral compromise need not affect spiritual salvation. And then Jesus comes along and pens this letter through John to the church at Thyatira and says, in effect, no, a theoretical devotion to God is not sufficient. It must be real. It must be actual. It must result in faithful involvement in the local church. Or we might put it like this, Jesus is in charge and his rule is going to be exercised through the church. First then, to show how this answers and deals with the Jezebel-like teaching that infected the Christians in Thyatira, the letter says first Jesus knows, then Jesus judges, and then third Jesus rewards. So then, my friends, let's go through that together. First, Jesus in charge for first, Jesus knows. So look at verse 18 where he's described as having eyes like a flame of fire. It refers back to Jesus' core identity that was described in chapter 1 when he is introduced for us by John in various picture language. And this part of Jesus' core identity is, if you like, his, you know, we might say sort of X-ray vision, I suppose. And so if you look at verse 19, it describes how this works in practice. So Jesus says, I know your works. His x-ray vision reveals these things. Your, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. 
So Jesus knows, and he's, he's commending them, as usual in these letters, for what they're doing well. And they are doing things well. Being a church in a city that is growing and developing the church, too, is, is growing and developing. It's doing better than it did at, even at first. Their works, that is, their love, their faith, their service, their perseverance, that's what he means by their works, that is growing. Jesus knows this. But he also knows more than this, verse 20, but, but, he knows. You see, look at verse 23, he is the one who searches mind and heart. Jesus sees what's going on, he knows, he knows what's going on in the church, he sees what's going on in the individual hearts, he knows, he knows their love and deeds are better than they were at first, he commends them, the church is growing, but he also knows that some among them have been drawn away into what could become a a fatal compromise with the world and he sees that too. That is, they have become members of one or other of these trade guilds and had by their membership indicated their worship of another god and perhaps even, well, he says, even indulged in the prevalent sexual immorality present after their occasional festivities that went along with the business deal. He knows. He sees. He sees even the heart. The mind and heart, of course, a phrase indicating the very internal workings of psychology. So he he doesn't just know what they do, he knows why they do it. He loves them in this, that's why he's writing to them. He he knows their, their longing for continued success, even while wanting a continued sort of faithfulness towards the church. He knows they're feeling like they're being torn in two. He he knows their desire for material success. He knows what's going on right inside. They, They cannot hide from him. So often you and I think we can. We think if we turn off the lights, perhaps God won't see us. We think, well, we're outside of the church building. He cannot see us. I mean, if he actually said it, we'd think that's ridiculous. But somehow inside, you know. Some people seem to think that God gets closer to you when you come closer to the altar at the front. That's why people don't sit on the front row, perhaps. Well done, you know. So, um, But it is a wonderful truth that God sees us with this x-ray vision. He... He knows us better than we know ourselves. As Calvin taught in his Institutes, the way to develop self-understanding is first to develop God-understanding. He knows us. He understands our deepest psychology. He knows what's really going on. That thing that perhaps, whether you call it subconscious or something you've forgotten or something that's delved right deep down in your mind and heart that in fact impacts how you behave and what you do, God, God, God sees it with his eyes like a flame of fire that it's so apparent to him it is as if it is written every day on, on your hands or your forehead. He sees it. He knows He's in charge first because he knows. Second, Jesus is in charge because he judges. There's no way of getting around the tone of judgment in this letter, I'm afraid. Uh, Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her immorality. So Jesus is being gracious. He's, He's trying to give her the time. 
He hasn't immediately leaped to conclusions, and, uh, but she's refused. So look at verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery... These are unnerving words, but here they are. I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. So he's still holding out the opportunity for repentance, unless they repent. And then he even says, I will strike her children dead. Now, obviously, we're dealing here with images, image language. And what we've got to do, though it's clearly about some kind of discipline and judgment, we've got to figure out what the image language means. The sick bed, well, that may simply be, I suppose, a hospital bed or something like that. This person's going to get sick, perhaps, or this teaching will will, um, get sick. It will be obvious that it isn't working or something like that. But it may also perhaps be, some people have thought, the, uh, the dining couch present at trade guild feasts. Now, that's the case. There's a deliberate kind of message being sent. Jesus is saying, well, you're lying on a, they're lying on a bed and committing adultery, but I'm, I'm sovereign even over that. And uh, unless you repent, that bed will become a bed that will be a sick bed. You see, the sin, as always, leads to death, of course, if it's not repented, unless you repent, unless they repent. But the children here, though, don't, don't be freaked out by that kind of uh, phrase here. The children there are not her physical children. Again, it's a sort of Jezebel's used as an image here. It's not her physical children, but those who have become so attached to this kind of teaching that they're no longer really Christians, if they ever were. You see, it says they are her children, not God's. There is discipline. Now, the discipline of God is always given to his children out of love. Think of great King David. When he was disciplined, uh, he had sinned. His kingdom was cast into disarray. God struck him, and it was done out of love. And I was looking at uh, Psalm 51 with uh, some of the uh, high school students on their retreat uh, just on Friday night. And Psalm 51 is a wonderful example of how discipline leads to such great things. That's why it's in the Bible to teach us that even someone who went as astray as David did can be brought back to write one of the greatest Psalms in the Bible, you see. Discipline is always in love, but sin is the chaos factor. It is the roots, it's the source of all our diseases and sufferings. And if not repented, it leads to judgment, that is, to death. There's nothing, there's nothing image-like about that phrase, the wages of sin is death. If we do not repent and we cash in our day's work to sin, the paycheck we will get will be death. You know, a lot of Christian teaching and preaching these days has, has tended, and this is why here at College Church we believe so strongly in working through the Bible consistently and preaching what's in front of us because it stops us going off track. And, and so many people are frightened about mentioning judgment, but if we don't, there are consequences. So I rather like the, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, I, I was told once by a, a, a Danish pipe-smoking theologian that I shared a house with when I was doing my PhD that actually it should be pronounced Kierkegaard, 
but I think I tried it several times with him, and I don't think I ever got it right to his satisfaction. So um, whether it's, you know, Kierkegaard or Kierkegaard, however it is pronounced, but one time the Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard quipped that it's just not the same thing to say to someone, you should live accountably, and that's it, you know, you should live accountably. It's not the same thing saying that, you should live accountably, there is a judgment coming. It's just not the same, and he's right, of course. There are consequences if our society does not preach judgment. Uh, Think of the Russian novelist Dostoevsky and his masterpiece, which is very much about this, uh, the brothers Karamazov. At one point, he makes uh, one of the brothers, Ivan, defend the patricide of his brother. Defend the patricide of his brother. Uh, the brother called Smeridyakov. Because, how did he defend it? If there is not immortality, that is, if there's no judgment to come or anything to come, if there is not immortality, everything is permissible. Isn't that where many people are going today? Isn't that why we have what we have today? Don't we need to hear this part of the message today? Jesus is in charge. Second, he judges. Third, Jesus is in charge. He rewards. Look then, my friends, at verse 26. Wonderful, wonderful promises here to the one who conquers by faith and follows Jesus in the faithful church. Look at verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. So there's no half-hearted Christianity here. It's someone who keeps going right to the end. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself received authority from my Father. That sounds a little in your face, some of that promise. But look at the context. Look at verse 28. And I will give him the morning star. Now, what are these promises really about? And again, to understand them, I think it's helpful to understand some of the context in Thyatira. As we've seen in the context in Thyatira, a promise to share in the spoils of conquest rather than in constantly being conquered must have had a particular poignancy for the Christians there. They were a conquered and reconquered people. They were beaten people. They were pushed down. And God is saying, you stay with me. Jesus is saying, you stay with me and we will conquer together. We will rule the nations. That promise to Thyatira must have been sweet. I one time spent a little bit of time in a country which had uh, been reconquered a lot. And one of the things I noticed is that sometimes people there were particularly liable to sort of charlatans, uh, false uh, promises and prophets of a new uprising against their latest masters, whoever they happen to be. But here is a true promise. It's not the leaders of the trade guilds who are in charge of the successful business masters who are compromised with the world in order to make their billions. It's not the Roman masters who are in charge, the military might. It's Jesus. 
And he will reward those in the church faithful to him with a share in ruling. It may be interesting here, it may soften some of the the aggressiveness of some of this ruling to realize that the ruling here is ruling, but it has this sense of shepherding. And uh, even the, the, breaking to piece, the breaking to pieces of the pottery, perhaps an image also poignant to those in Thyatira who are familiar with the pottery guild. It's not the pottery guild that's in charge, it's Jesus and those who will rule with him. How about the morning star? It requires a little further explanation. And uh, look with me then at Revelation chapter 22, if you will. You can find that perhaps if you have a Bible. If not, I'll read it out to you. But Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, a lot of people have struggled with trying to figure out what the morning star could be in a way that's just, uh, you know, more than simply sentimental. It sounds nice, but what does it mean? And so if you look at Revelation 22, verse 16, here I think is the key. Again, it's Jesus speaking, and he says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now, some people say that you can't really go to chapter 22 to explain this verse because uh, who knows whether the Thyatirans actually got the whole book. Uh, and, and maybe they hadn't, if they had, did they read this far and, and all that? But to me, the way this probably worked is that all these churches received the whole book along with the letter to them, and then Thyatirans, perhaps they read through to the end, hoping to find out what the morning star would be, and of course, that bright star here they found associated with David and the royal kingdom that shines first in the morning, a star of hope and rulership, a messianic, Davidic kingdom ruling the star of David, the star that hung over Bethlehem. The morning star is Jesus himself. Jesus is saying, I'm I'm giving you me. You're going to have a share in me. Well, Jesus' judgment is coming. Whose side are you on? Are you faithful to him and the church? Perhaps you think it doesn't matter that you can hide, but you cannot hide. Jesus sees everything. Perhaps you think you can run away. You cannot escape. Where would you go to? How could you run from the discipline of the sovereign ruler of the universe? Would you escape to another town? Do you think God is only God of Wheaton because it's the evangelical kind of uh, Jerusalem and not downtown Chicago as well? Or only God of America and not the rest of the world? Well, where would you run to? You think if you run from church, God will not find you? God is God of the cosmos, not just the religious part of life, of the, of the trade guild as much as the college or the church. How could you escape from the coming judgment? There is judgment now. The seeming rulers of this world are only there by the permission of God Almighty, King of the nations, the one with eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. 
That burnished bronze, a word used only here and in Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 15, the beginning of the description there of Jesus and his identity with image language. It seems, I think, to indicate the special technique for making bronze, an alloy for which Thyatira may have specially traded for military and financial purposes. In other words, those, those feats of strength and suppleness. The eyes before which we cannot hide, the feet from which we cannot run. You cannot hide, you cannot run, you can be saved. Oh, yes. What does Jesus say? The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him. Jesus' promise here, listen. I will give authority over the nations. And Jesus' promise, listen. And I will give him the morning star in Christ. A share in Jesus. And so Jesus concludes, he who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Just a moment of silence to conjure up before our minds the difficulties that sometimes we find to live as faithful Christians in the world and still remain faithful to Jesus and to the church. Perhaps it is a business deal. Perhaps it's a romance time of life when everything seems to say give in perhaps it is some other matter known only to you and to Jesus would you talk to Jesus about that in the silence He knows already. Would you tell him how hard it is? Would you listen to his promise? I will give you the morning star. Jesus, we thank you for the great promises in your word. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. And we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to be faithful to the end. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.